In the last podcast, we discussed the way the explosion of art uh, signaled Europe's uh, move out of the Middle Ages and into a new era. I used uh, Michelangelo's um, famous painting of the Sistine Chapel as a way to capture some of the heart of the Renaissance. I, I might have used other art by Michelangelo, um, his famous sculpture of David or the Pietà, uh, the, the sculpture of Mary holding, Mary seated and holding uh, Jesus, uh, who's, bought, he's, who's dead, he's been taken down off of the cross. Uh, we might have used Donatello's uh, David or Raphael's fresco, School of Athens, which um, some believe is perhaps more representative of Renaissance and what was going on than even the Sistine Chapel. There's a lot of great and uh, famous Renaissance art to choose from. In today's lecture, we're going to um, move beyond that. We're going to look at some of the reasons Europe undergoes this dramatic change that led to an explosion of art. I'm going to give you a broader overview of this 15th century rebirth, which is what the word Renaissance means, rebirth, rediscovery. Uh, we're going to focus on the significant changes that define 15th and uh, 16th centuries. Some say the Renaissance actually started in the 14th century. Some say it goes into the 17th century. But, um, but basically, you've got a repositioning of the West that is fundamentally happening in the 15th and 16th century. So, I already mentioned last time the, um, the art of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, by the way, it, it occurred to me that uh, in, in the same way that some people learned everything they know about the Middle Ages from Monty Python, some people learned as much as they know about the Renaissance from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So they only know the name uh, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael as uh, cartoon characters. Um, they may not even know that they were great artists. Now, I'm actually okay with that, uh, far more okay with that than I am with people learning their church history or their Renaissance history from a Daniel Brown novel. You're better off going with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Monty Python, in my humble opinion. In any event, We've talked about artists and how art exploded. Um, not so much, by the way, in what was painted. So Renaissance art is going to remain mostly sacred art. Artists are going to paint the Madonna over and over and over and over again. Um, there is some change. The people become more beautiful. There's a medieval views of humans uh, is that they're they're bad, broken, sinful. And so you've got uh, this idea even that, that the sin of man sort of uh, mars their image. When you get into the Renaissance, there's, it's, still very, it's, uh, it's still profoundly shaped by Christian uh, assumptions and other things. But now it's more um, hum, humans made in the image of God and there's nobility there. And, so, and you're also looking back to the it's just some of the Roman and Greek images of the perfect human. And so the image of the person will change. Um, and of course, in the Renaissance, we mentioned that perspective changes as they learn how to do three-dimensional artists. So I'm not actually going to be talking much uh, about art this time. I want to focus on other things. And there's so much to choose from. So in addition to art, you have, um, you have famous architects. 
such as Brunelleschi, uh, Michelangelo will also factor in here. The, he's he's uh, picks up. He's not the starting architect of St. Peter's uh, Basilica, but he's going to be a, a major one. It'll he'll die before it's finished. Uh, but there's also famous scientists, so Copernicus and Galileo, and there's famous philosophers. There's all all kinds of big, significant people and events unfold during this time. So, as I have been saying, when we get into the Renaissance, the, the Middle Ages, a thousand-year period in which it's there's some stability. Don't want to overplay that, but there's some stability. Now the pace is going to pick up. So we've spent so far in this series, where I think this is lecture 34, so we're a third of the way through, but we've covered 1,500 years. We're now going to spend um, uh, the next 60 lectures covering 500 years. So it, all this will remain at a pretty high level. We've got to move quickly, but it'll be this blend of church history and Western civilization and other kinds of things that I think are important in shaping your world, your worldview, my worldview, uh, all of that. So, with that as set up, what is, what was the Renaissance? It was a uh, cultural, political, social, economic, philosophic, intellectual, and epistemological revolution. And it started in Florence in uh, the late 14th century, and it lasted a few hundred years. Um, for those reasons and more, it was a time of significant change, thus the word revolution. Uh, so significant that many claim that the Renaissance uh, is the hinge point of Western civilization, and that everything is going to change, um, that it, it brings us into the modern era. I, I'm not going to go quite as far as some go on that point. I think the Reformation is huge, and I think it's uh, just as revolutionary. In fact, I'm inclined to think that, that some of the changes brought about by the Reformation are at least as important, if not more important, than some of the changes in the Renaissance. But um, all that, uh, I want us to remember the, the, the Renaissance is this revolution fundamentally among the elite. So um, it, we can't think like 21st century Westerners right now in a world that is so largely interconnected. So a lot of what happens in the Renaissance is not going to have much impact at all on uh, the typical you know, Italian peasant who's out working in a farm in a village and is not involved in this world of ideas or this world of art. Um, but the Renaissance was big. And um, part of the reason that it's big is because uh, on, it is disruptive on so many different fronts. So uh, in, back in the early 90s, Peter Drucker, the management uh, thinker, wrote a book, The Post-Capitalist Society. And he started by noting that if you studied history, his claim, if you studied history, you'd see that every two to 400 years, some revolution, some advancement, something, often technological, is going to happen that is, that is going to be so significant that over the next 20 to 30 years, it's going to so fundamentally alter the world that children born during that period cannot imagine the lives of their grandparents or the world into which their own parents were born. So when I was consulting, I used to talk about this um, a fair bit because there was a lot of talk about change. And uh, I, I used to note that 
Um, we were living during one of these periods of change. And in fact, um, I, I, I think we, we still are. But uh, I used to note uh, that not only were my boys, so this was 25 years ago, so not only were my boys uh, unable to imagine the world into which their grandparents were born and lived. So Sherry's dad actually rode a horse to a one-room schoolroom in the, you know, the, the wheat fields of Kansas. So he went to a one-room school, very small town, rode a horse to get there. So not only is that completely distanced from their experience, and not only is my life, you know, my tales of woe and hardship and walking uphill to school both ways and all of that, uh, not only was my, you know, accounts of my childhood something they could hardly relate to, I used to point out they didn't even believe the world into which they were born. So I remember one day going around, so Austin's probably 10 and so Jason is, or Ben is, um, you know, six or seven. Jason is just a couple years old. And I started pointing out to Austin all the things that weren't in place when he was born. I remember uh, particularly got his attention with the, with the DVD player. So, I mean, we were backing up a lot of technologies, I realized this, but I pointed to the DVD player and I said, I said, Jason, there weren't DVD players, Austin, there weren't DVD players when I was born. I go, as a matter of fact, there weren't DVD players when you were born. I go, we just got this a few years ago. And uh, then I pointed to other things that were new, uh, like, you know, the way we store disks. And we had just moved. We were just moving from, from the, the floppy, floppy disks to more like CDs and things. And, and you know, he, was, he didn't believe me. He didn't believe the world into which he had been born. So there are writers today, uh, sort of more secular historians, who claim that the 15th century was a time of absolutely massive change more massive than what's going on right now. And back then, Francis Bacon, um, 17th century philosopher, sort of famously said that printing gunpowder and the compass had fundamentally changed the face of the world. The first in literary matters, the second in warfare, and the third in navigation. So the Renaissance is a, is a time of massive change and revolution. So, what brings all this about? Well, there were a number of things that all sort of coalesced at the same time, all as catalysts, and so they, they're driving change, but then they're playing off of each other, and they're leading to more change and all of this. So, for starters, one of the big things that happens that launches the Renaissance is that uh, Constantinople falls. So, Constantinople, the capital of the East, uh, the, the people living in Constantinople he, here in the 15th century consider themselves Romans. That, so the Roman Empire in their world is still going. They're the new Rome. Well, Constantinople is going to fall uh, to the Ottomans uh, in 1453. So when the, when, uh, when the Muslims, the Ottomans, come and Constantinople falls, as this is about to happen, um, and it's, it, it happens because Constantinople basically had, had never fallen. It fa falls once to a crusade to, uh, to Christians from the West, but they sort of got in. Um, so now it's going to fall because of cannons and other, you know, mo more modern warfare weaponry. So when it falls or it's about to fall, the scholars from Constantinople 
are going to flee uh, and they're going to take books with them. And they're going to go to Italy. And the, the, the library in the Vatican and the libraries in Italy are going to fill up with these ancient texts. So backing up to the Roman and the Greek era and Aristotle and all of this. And uh, they're going to bring with them a knowledge of the past. So when we think of, of advancing, <laughs> we're not thinking about studying the past. The past to us is sort of old and stale and tired. We look to the future. We look to the changes, all the technological revolutions. But, but at this point, they were aware that there, had, there were things that the Romans and the Greeks had been able to do that they could still not do. There were, there were architectural buildings that they didn't know how to figure out. There was all this stuff, the aqueducts and all these other things that the Greeks had, philosophy and other things that they wanted to get back to. They thought it was... It was sort of a synthesized, perfect set of ideas back there. So, um, so there's going to be, this is, this is where the word Renaissance comes. So the, the Renaissance is you've got these elite people looking back past the Middle Ages, and the word Middle Ages is going to come about at this point uh, by Plutarch, I believe. He's going to name it. He's going to have this idea that there had been this ancient, wonderful civilization and then there had been the Middle Ages where the church had taken over and oppressed everybody and it had been backwards. And now you're having a rebirth with all these old uh, ideas that are new and novel. Uh, a second thing that, that happens to fuel this is that the advances that, that came, the new insights that came from looking back to the philosophers. And remember, philosophy, as it's used back then, was not simply... You know, uh, it's not simply metaphysics and epistemology and, and philosophy as we think of it today. Natural philosophy was also science. And so they're, they're, they're going back to this, and it's also politics. So they're going back to these ideas, but they are then mixing in things that they've learned in the last thousand years. And so you end up with a whole bunch of advances in a whole bunch of different ways. Math, engineering, um, uh, architecture. Uh, one of the things that gets invented during the Renaissance is the pocket watch. So it'd be, it's, it's by far the most complicated piece of machinery uh, in the world at that time. The previous, uh, the estimate that the previous most complicated piece of machinery was the pipe organ. Now you have a pocket watch. And the pocket watch is going to allow uh, people like uh, Copernicus and Galileo to, to precisely measure uh, the, the flow of planets. And that's going to force them to uh, move from the, you know, the, uh, the Earth-centric view of the solar system to a heliocentric view. And they're going to understand different, uh, an elliptical path of the planets and other things. Because they've, again, everything is playing off of each other. Politics uh, is going to take uh, big steps forward in part because of Gutenberg's press, which some will say is the most important invention in a thousand years. And, and Gutenberg will publish Bibles, lots of religious literature is enormously important when we get to the Reformation, but, the, but Gutenberg will also publish a lot of uh, just leaflets and tracts, and so information about the world and about politics is going to change. And so people are going to be a lot more educated about what's going on. You also have uh, politics changing because the plague 
is going to fundamentally challenge feudalism. So you're going to have, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of some villages wiped out. Uh, estimates range from, you know, 50 million people dying uh, because of the Black Death to 200 million people dying. And uh, this is just so much, so dramatically eclipses anything else that we can compare it to. World War One, 1.55% uh, of the population uh, died. So uh, the Black Plague is 200 times more deaths than World War One. Uh, World War Two, I read somebody that said you would have had to drop two atom bombs every day for seven months to have the kind of devastation that you have by the Black Plague. So what this does is it wipes out the labor force. And so you had this system where you had you know, noblemen and, and knights and then serfs, and all these serfs tending, tending the land. Well, there's no serfs to tend the land. And so now the value of a serf who has survived is much higher. And that's going to change the nature of politics. A business is going to change. You, um, you have the advent of double-ledger uh, accounting, which is going to allow people to leverage their capital and, um, and expand it. You have banking um, coming on with uh, uh, the Medici becoming one of the most powerful families. I understand there's a TV show or a Netflix show or something about the Medici family full of intrigue. I'm sure there was a lot of intrigue. They become enormously wealthy and uh, powerful, and it's a whole, it's, it's upsetting the whole feudal system. Uh, and the Medici are going to be instrumental not just in making money. Uh, Lorenzo Medici, I think, is, is, it's, he makes about $500 million um, in today's, uh, in today's money, and he pours it into art. So that's going to help fuel the Renaissance, because now it's not just the church as the patron of the arts, but you've also got uh, philanthropists or you know, donors uh, fueling art. Um, another big change will come about because of philosophy. And here I'm thinking, in particular, uh, of, a, of an epistemological change. Now, don't panic. I know that's a big word. It's, it, and it's, it's actually a fairly complicated um, topic, but it's not hard to at least understand it. Epistemology is the study of, of knowledge. So how do we know what we know? Like, what are you basing your understanding of life and your worldview on? So um, in a big sense, the Renaissance is about how educated Western Europeans are going to rediscover ancient Greek philosophy. Another way to talk about this is to say that there is going to be this, this transition, I'm simplifying here, but a transition away from uh, an epistemology based on tradition, uh, and in particular when I say tradition I mean the Catholic Church and, and the Pope, um, to an epistemology based more on reason or logic that's going to give way to science. Now. Um, Look, Western civilization uh, and, and uh, Western civ classes are not taught today. As a matter of fact, I could probably end up canceled for even suggesting that there's value there because when people are attacking, um, you know, dead white European 
males, they're, they're effectively attacking Western civilization. So today Western civilization is taught, world civilization is taught. But what, what you need to remember is that Western civilization uh, emerges out of the sort of the marriage of Greek uh, philosophy, Roman um, power, military power, administrative savvy, and then uh, Hebrew and, and Christian uh, ethics and prophetic sort of rule of law kinds of things. These, these four, talking about um, Athens and Jerusalem, uh, these four um, building blocks, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, and the Christians, combine to create a culture that is called Western civilization. And it tends to be um, a unique culture, a unique view of life. It's long on uh, individual liberty and reason and science. And there's certain notions about uh, pluralism and democracy and other things. So part of what makes the West different and in, in what fuels the Renaissance uh, and what pulls the Renaissance out of the Middle Ages is this shift away from tradition, away from the church being the, the driving definer of how we are to think, towards uh, reason becoming a more prominent role. So when I've talked about this in the past, I've, I've generally said that um, you could think about uh, four sources of authority, like four suits uh, in a card game. Uh, so you got, you know, clubs and spades and diamonds and hearts. And one of those suits is, in, a, in most card games, you have something that is dominant. It's Trump. Using the word Trump is now complicated because of the 46th president. When I say the Trump card, I'm not referring to Donald Trump in any way. I'm talking about whatever, whatever suit in a card game is the most powerful. So coming out of the Middle Ages, uh, you are seeing that the, the, the trump card is no longer tradition. It's now going to move more towards reason. Now, this is unfair uh, to Roman Catholics. They would not be comfortable with me su suggesting that the trump card uh, in the Middle Ages is, is tradition. Uh, they would want it also to be revelation by which God has revealed himself to so the scripture. Uh, and then the other one would be experience. So you got the, those are generally the four suits that I would talk about. You've got reason, revelation, uh, experience, and tradition. But, but you have this kind of big uh, shift taking place. Additionally, you've got a lot of changes happening in the Renaissance because this is the age of discovery. 1492, so right in the heart of the Renaissance, 15th century. 1492, Columbus sailed the oceans blue. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to launch into colonialism, which is going to dramatically change the world. I mean, it's going to change it for the next 500 years. It's going to affect uh, you know, global politics for the next 500 years until we sort of move into a very anti-colonial time, which we're in right now, obviously. But the realization that the world is bigger than it had previously been understood. Columbus, pretty much everybody that was educated at the time knew that the world was round. It, there's less reason to think Columbus feared that the earth was flat and every, you know, people thought they were going to fall off the end. The question is, how big was it? And could you get around it before you ran out of fresh water? 
And uh, Columbus dramatically um, underestimated how big the world was, but he also didn't realize that there was a whole other you know, landmass there. And so he hits, um, he hits the Americas. And uh, this is going to shock everybody because, wow, there's all these people and they don't know about the Christian faith. And so it's, that is going to sort of fry people's minds. Um, in addition to um, all of that, you have uh, another reason that uh, the Renaissance happens is because there's money to pour into the system. You can't have people doing art. You can't have a bunch of people sitting around uh, thinking big thoughts. You can't have people writing books and, and people going to universities and other things unless somebody can afford for them to do that without having to work. So Italy is going to become very wealthy uh, as we head into this time period because of, uh, because of trade, because of banking and other things. Um, the last catalyst that I'll mention for the Renaissance is the fact that you have a lot of people who are ready for change. Uh, the, the early Middle Ages were not as dark as some people suggest they were. The High Middle Ages were not as bad as Monty Python sketches suggest that they were. But as I have suggested, the late Middle Ages were getting pretty old. The problems were piling up. I've already mentioned the plague. Uh, hard to imagine how much that has given people. And, and the plague isn't just a one wave of this. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, you get better, and then there's another wave, which we're, you know, we're experiencing with um, the, the current pandemic. You know, there, there's, there's spikes and valleys, and then another spike. So you have a lot of people who are just really um, just wanting to move forward with life. Um, you have, in the 15th century, it's full of war. You've got, again, the, the surge of the Muslim uh, Empire, the Ottoman Turks, you've got the Hundred Years' War, you've got new weapons, so there's just a lot of, uh, of death. You've got the problems in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this is the time of the great uh, papal schism, so you have two popes in Avignon, you, then you've got, uh, for a brief period of time, you've got three popes. Um, a lot of the clergy, not all, don't, don't hear that, but you've got a lot of clergy who are not uh, living exemplary lives. You've got some uh, very scandalous uh, popes during the Renaissance. They saw themselves as the princes of the church and they wanted to live like princes. And so you've just got a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So a lot of disappointment with the church. You've got uh, the church moving, um, the Catholic church moving against um, some of the laity. Jan Hus is gonna be you know, put to death for translating the Bible. Now, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a Protestant. Um, I think the Roman Catholic Church loses its way. I'm not alone in that. The, the Catholic Church will enter into a period of uh, its own Reformation. So we're, we're about to head into the Protestant Reformation. The word Protestant has got a cognate here of, of protests. Protesters, so they're going to protest the abuses they see in the Catholic Church. Uh, and a lot of this is going to grow right out of the Renaissance. But um, it's not just Protestants. The, there's been ongoing reform movements in the, in the church at this point, all these monastic movements. But then there's going to be a major reset. After the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church is going to have a, a, its own Council of Trent and its own Catholic Reformation. 
So you just have got a lot of bad things that have been swirling around at this moment, uh, and people are ready for change. And so you've got a lot of bad things happening, you've got a lot of good things happening, you've got rediscovery, you've got new ways of thinking, you've got massive explorations, you've got all these new inventions. Um, and so uh, as a result, you have a, a revolution of life. Feudalism is, is going to fall away. Nationalism is going to grow. The Western church is going to split. A scientific revolution is about to take place. Colonialism is going to become the new rule of the day. And even people will think differently about themselves. So in my prep for this lecture, uh, two different books that I was reading made a, a surprising amount, to my way of thinking, about the importance, the revolutionary development uh, of the uh, 14th or 15th century, the mirror. For the first time, people could see what they looked like. Uh, there had been reflections in the past. There had been other kinds of, of mirrors, but they were not nearly as good. Now people could see themselves. And this is sort of always tends to be tied into this idea that you're in the West, you're going to have this new growing emergence of individualism. Well, with all of that as a basis, let me share a few other um, things that you just need to know about. Should you decide that my, you know, this podcast is not the definitive word uh, on the Reformation, you think you've got to go read somebody else, um, you think that uh, other people are going to have more insights to offer than I do, uh, you're going to discover that there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces in Renaissance scholarship. So um, one of the things that may surprise you, because it just it keeps surprising me, that when I was learning this stuff, um, uh, history was taught um, in a very... Um, in a very discreet sense. And so you um, overviews like this were very linear and topics were very, um, yeah, very discreet. You tended to, you studied the Renaissance and then you discovered the Reformation. Uh, okay, well, except the Renaissance and the Reformation are dramatically overlapping and you've got the scientific revolution in there and you still have got late Middle Ages in there and you just got all these things that are happening. So it's been a number of lectures ago that I was talking about the Black Plague, but it's going on. It's been a number of lectures ago that we talked about the Crusades. You still have Crusades going on. Again, the Hundred Years' War, it's still going on. Um, so all these things are, are combining with the explosion of art and um, you know, Columbus and all of this. So, so, uh, so Western civilization is a little bit more um, messy in that sense. Uh, secondly, you have got, um, you have got uh, a lot of this framed in the context of what's called humanism. Now, when I first came to faith, uh, lo, these many years ago, uh, one of the things that I heard a lot about, didn't understand, I'm not convinced the people talking about it understood it either, but I heard we had this bad uh, this bad thing that I needed to be scared about, and it was secular humanism. So I didn't know what secular meant, and I didn't know what humanism meant. Um, but alongside the Soviets, I needed to be scared of secular humanism. Well, the word humanism is used at this time frame, and it's used um, in a different way. 
So it's, 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 po it's very positive about humans. And so again, we're coming out of this time, the Middle Ages was sort of down on humans, a lot of sin, a lot of problems uh, with humans. Uh, now when we get into the Renaissance, people are more um, celebratory about human life and human capabilities and other things. So you have, the in this context, humanists are people who are sort of not scholastics. So you'll remember the, the scholastic movement. We talked about this with uh, um, St. Thomas Aquinas looking and trying to synthesize um, some of the uh, medieval theology with, uh, he was looking at Aristotle and sort of coming up with some, uh, so it was very logic driven. So the humanists are more humanities driven. It's a, it's a little bit broader uh, understanding, a little bit uh, of a broader effort to pull all of this together. And humanists uh, at this time are more, um, the word humanists are more positive. So Calvin, John Calvin, who we'll look at uh, in a while, he's one of the big reformers, is thought of as a humanist. The humanists were uh, engaged in studies and they were going back to the sources. Ad fontes was a big, uh, uh, a big term back then. Back, ad fontes, back to the sources. So going back to the original languages, going back to the studying Greek so you could read Aristotle uh, more accurately. Well, all these Renaissance uh, humanists that are studying the ancient languages are then, uh, like Calvin and Luther, are then going to know Greek and they're going to go back to the Greek New Testament. And this is going to be very influential in sort of launching the Reformation because they're going to see, well, that their understanding of, of some of these passages was, uh, as a Protestant say, not accurate. They're, they've confused repentance and penance. They've confused justification and what that really means. So, um, so you're going to have that. You're also, with the humanists, you need to understand that um, that when it gets used a little bit later on, when we get to the Enlightenment, um, it is a little bit anti-God. So in the Enlightenment, one of the things that gets repeated, and this was actually uh, from like the 5th century BC, but, um, but it, it's going to get some uh, staying power in the Enlightenment, is that God is dethroned and man becomes the measure of all things. Um, so you get you don't get God being dethroned. Most all of the Renaissance scholars, most, not all, but most of the Renaissance scholars are coming at life from a Judeo-Christian vantage point. Um, so humanism is a big term. The third thing you need to understand as you're reading about the Renaissance is that uh, there wasn't just one Renaissance. So most of the focus is going to be on the Italian Renaissance uh, and that's where you got, you know, your best art and other things. But there's a German Renaissance, and there's, uh, there are a number of other Renaissances. Again, don't think of the world back then like it is today. Today, if you go anywhere, there's, you know, McDonald's and Starbucks, and your Visa card will work and all that. The, these cultures are different, and, uh, and they're not always sharing their ideas. <clears throat> A fourth thing that you need to uh, remember if you're reading more about the Renaissance, and I've already mentioned this, but just to make this clear, the Renaissance is fundamentally um, impacting initially uh, the elite. 
It's impacting the educated. Uh, most people are not educated. Most people are not literate. The farmer working um, on a small farm in a village is not having big discussions about epistemological shifts and uh, artwork and differences of perspective. So um, there is a view, by the way, and uh, that that divides uh, that divides Western history into three categories, um, and I, I I need to bring this up again because um, this is probably the area that will be the most uh, confusing to you depending upon what book you might pick up to read. So the, the, there's many people, sort of secular people, at the time of the Renaissance, uh, but even today, who would say you have an ancient civilization from like um, negative, uh, or negative, from the 7th century BC up through the 5th century AD, this is Greeks and Romans, and this is all of that, and it, it develops, and it's, a, it's good, and it's based on reason and all that. Then you have the fall of Rome, the collapse of Rome, and you enter into the Dark Ages, which then is going to later be uh, renamed the Middle Ages. Petrarch is going to say, you, you want to look past all this stuff in the middle. Nothing good happens. The church is heavy and oppressive, and it squelches all originality and other things. And now we're coming into the rebirth. So you've got people writing about that, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of people really being negative. And again, this is sort of fuels the Monty Python uh, narrative about the Middle Ages. It's all bubonic death and plagues and serfs and, and uh, Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades. Um, there is a growing number of people, uh, of scholars today, who are saying, actually, the difference between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance is not that significant. And the Renaissance thinkers have a lot of medieval thinking with them. There's good things that were starting to happen in the Middle Ages. And obviously there is a, a significant rebirth that takes place and an explosion of things. But I'm, I'm more in this new camp that, that is not nearly as negative on the Middle Ages. And remember, uh, another way that the Middle Ages are called, it's not the Middle Ages, it was called Christendom because the church was in charge. When, when the Roman Empire falls apart, remember back with Gregory the Great, he sort of, the church sort of steps in to become not just the spiritual state, but for a long time sort of uh, over some civil uh, issues as well. Well, that is enough, I suspect. There is certainly more in talking about the Renaissance. It's a huge topic. Uh, again, I think it's significant for our vantage point coming at this as Christians trying to understand the world in which we live and how we got here and uh, understanding what's going to come next with the Reformation and then the Enlightenment and modernity and now we're in post-modernity. Understanding how, uh, how worldviews and thinking has changed. One of the things to, to appreciate about the Renaissance is that it sets up the Reformation. Hard to believe that there wouldn't have been reform in the church. There had to be. But uh, getting back to the sources is going to drive Luther and others back to the Greek uh, New Testament, and that is going to be very significant. So um, we will uh, pick up next time. We're going to do, uh, actually, I'm going to do three uh, episodes on the Reformation 
because it's so big, it can't handle it in just one. So uh, we will pick up next time with the Reformation. See you then.